Reflecting on the water As the sun shuts her eyes Don't know why you'll uncover Watch the tide rolling With the moonlight Everything is silent On this wheezy bed of night Welcome, we are Missing Magnolias. Today we have a really exciting guest. We have Charlene Shunick with us. Welcome, Charlene. Thank you. Would you prefer to be called Charlene or Charlie? Charlie. Charlie, all right. Me and Charlie go way back to the undergrad days. And Charlie does some really awesome professor work. And she runs this amazing nonprofit organization for typically for families of the missing. It's called RAMP. And we are going to inundate Charlie with questions about her experiences today. And she, I think, has a really unique perspective about the missing experience, about crime, and all the ways in which it affects our lives. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be in this position where you're running this nonprofit organization for the missing? I don't honestly know. It just sort of happened. In the summer of 2012, my little sister went missing. And it was a very high-profile case for a number of reasons that we'll probably get into. Because of the nature of my sister's case and the amount of media attention, the amount of government officials outside of just law enforcement that were working on it, so many different Individuals, family members, you name it, started contacting me personally and contacting really my mom personally and asking us how we did this and that, how we got media attention, how did we get money to get helicopters, how did we contact search and rescue, how did we do this, you name it. They're asking all this type of stuff. And before we figured out what happened to my sister, which for us, we got very lucky. It was a short, open and closed type of case compared to others. I was already working on my first other case of Kiosha Felix, who to this day is still missing. She's a missing woman from Lafayette. And she went missing, I believe, within a few weeks of my sister going missing. And I started working on this maybe about two months after it occurred. At this time in my life, it was actually between my first and second year of my master's degree in grad school. In grad school, you don't typically do summer classes. You typically do research. And my mentor at the time graciously let me not come back. So I just happened to have the time to start doing all this. To make a long story short, more and more people asked for help. I went back to school. I started talking with people. How do we make a nonprofit organization? I met this wonderful woman from Melbourne, Australia. She really grew up in Geelong, but she was living in Melbourne at the time. She asked me to help create a portion of her website for the civilian foot searches, search and rescue stuff outside of law enforcement influence and regulation, because it's very different in Australia than it is here. Around that time, I started recognizing how much work goes into running a nonprofit as a business. After grad school, I had a really great job. My boss was forced into retirement. We all lost our job. I was living in Dallas, Texas. At that point, I realized I wanted to do the missing person thing. I had gained enough traction for it. I moved back to New Orleans. 
I took a year off of being out of grad school before I looked for a serious job. And I wanted to see if I could get 501c3 status and find grants to support myself financially to be able to be a CEO, president, founder of a nonprofit. I did get 501c3 status. That actually did take an entire year. I could not find grants. I ended up adjuncting at a community college here in New Orleans, and now I'm an assistant professor, and I run a nonprofit on the side. (laughs) Wow. I want to ask so many questions. I also want to talk about grant writing. It's tough. In academia and education, there's grants, and they have specific standards that they expect people to meet that are going to submit proposals. For my nonprofit, because we work with all types of people, all age groups, all ethnicities or races, and all types of crimes, you just can't find grants. They have them for children, people of color, women, older adult populations, people like silver alerts, people with uh, diminished mental capacities, but they don't have something that meets all those standards. There's no missing person groups that give out grants to people like us. So we just can't find anything. I'm going to think on this and I might pull in some colleagues to brainstorm some ideas because there might be some avenues that are available to us that we aren't aware of. But absolutely, grant writing is incredibly hard, especially to get in as a new person without grants experience. But also you talk about the bigger issue that we have in the United States and that we don't really prioritize missingness at all we're struggling to even understand the scope of the problem. I think because it's such a broad scope. The weirdest question I get when I start meeting different people and they ask what we do, I'm like, you can't sum it up because it just depends on the circumstances of the case, what the family or loved one needs, what's going on with the police and the community and the media. It's so variable. I'm sure you've experienced that a little bit since you've been working with so many people in different groups. You can't pinpoint exactly what a missing person is. How do you define it? And that's what's so hard is so much is unknown. I love that you brought up Kiosha because we have covered Kiosha's case. That was one of our very early ones because that always stuck in my memory. I think your sister's case and Kiosha's case for me are what pushed me into the field of criminology, pushed me into the work that I do. So those two cases are very meaningful to me as an outsider. Our listeners are not familiar, at least in our realm, of your sister's case. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Give us an overview so they can have an idea of what happened. So on May 19th, 2012, my little brother was graduating from high school. That's actually one of the reasons I came in from Dallas. I was supposed to be in Lafayette for like a week. He was graduating. One of my best friends was graduating from LSU. It was my sister's birthday. My sister didn't show up to his graduation, which was weird. But she was uh, 21, just about to be 22. And she was kind of doing what 21-year-olds do. She was going out, partying, whatever. So I thought maybe she's really hungover or something. And she just messed up. So we go to the graduation, me and my mom, was, my dad was offshore working. He's a micropaleontologist. Later that day, I'm with some of my besties and my mom called me and she said that my sister still had not come home. So then I'm like, okay, this is really weird. So I'm calling first her very best friends that I knew. And I find out that she was last with this young man named Brettley. And I knew him. So I get Brettley's number, I call him, and he's so confused. I'm like, have you seen Mickey? He's like, no. She left my house last night. I don't remember what time. I want to say it was like between 1130 and 1230. I was like, okay. 
That's really weird. So anyway, I start freaking out. Inside, I was like, this is not good. I go back to my parents' house. We call the police. The police are like, call all the hospitals, call all the rehabs, whatever. Anywhere you can think of where someone would go, where there's patient confidentiality, where the hospital, since they're an adult, they can't call us. So we're calling. No one is there of any of these places matching her description. So we call the cops back. We say, no one knows where she is. A police officer comes out. He takes the statement. My sister's friends created a missing person flyer. And that night, this is all the same day they had already went out as a group looking for her. We start going on foot searches. At this point, we think she was on her bike. She must have been hit. So that's what we're looking for. The media attention became exponential. That's the first time I was on camera. And I was basically like, I'm Charlie, Mickey's someone else. We look really similar. If you see me, we haven't found her. There's a phenomenon in the media called missing white woman syndrome. This is a textbook, classic example of that. I will give credit where credit's due. The organization and communication of my sister's friends, organizing a home base where people could come, making missing person flyers, starting social media campaign. All of this was done in two days. I think by day three, we had a map that we were gridding off uh, from advice of search and rescue teams that weren't working with us yet. I mean, it was unbelievable. And then, of course, as more and more traction gained, we got more and more organized. And I do think that organization, plus the fact that my sister was a young, beautiful white woman with blonde hair and blue eyes that went missing under mysterious circumstances, and it was the summer, was all this perfect mixture that allowed for this to really explode. Because there was community support, and a lot of media attention. The police were doing what they were supposed to be doing. And eventually we got search and rescue. We were working with Texas EquiSearch. And what a lot of other people might not know is the Law Recovery Center was also calling me at least once a week. And the reason they did not work on the case was because they only work with children, I believe 17 and younger. And my sister was 21. After about, I would say six to eight weeks, it's about two months in, we're still not sure what's going on with my sister. We have no idea where she is. And around that time is when the energy was sort of going away and not negatively, just like we had really searched everywhere there is, is to search. So we moved from Blackham to a different headquarters. At that point, we hadn't been sleeping for weeks. The media coverage was beating me down. Our mental health was really poor around the time that I think I was at least feeling the burnout and some of the different groups and everybody weren't getting along as well anymore because it was so stressful. We found out what happened to my sister. Now, I don't, I've never told anyone this before and I don't mind sharing it. The private investigator that was working on my sister's case had heard about this man named Brandon Scott Laverne the day before the media found out about it. There was a mole in the police department that was feeding information to, I think specifically KTC and KLFY, and they were breaking that, those details to the public. Luckily, my family did know about it, but a lot of the times people's families don't know about it, and we can talk about my beef with the media later, but if my sister had been alive and something would have happened to her, I would have absolutely blamed the local media for that and whoever the mole in the police department was. 
but the PI did tell me about him the night before. I looked into this man, Brandon Scott Laverne. I said, if this is the last man that saw my sister, there's no way that she's alive. The next day, the media is asking me about him. And I called the lead detective, Stephen Bajaw. We still talk all the time. And I said, what's up with this guy? He said, how do you know this name? And I said, the PI told me. And that's when he knew that we were all fucked, for lack of a better term. We were screwed. And it's because... If the, the PI knows, then the media knows. And the media found out they break it the next day. The police had known about Brandon Scott Laverne for, I think, about six weeks at this point. They'd been tailing him because he was a really bad criminal. There was a trail of everything that happened after he saw my sister, abducted her, and murdered her, and hid her remains. And the police knew a majority of this. They did not know where my sister's body was, but they had a working story of exactly what happened. They had to pull him in instead of getting more time to get more evidence about where he was going, what he was doing, because they were hoping that he would lead them to where he put her body so that they had more evidence. But instead, they had to take him in without proof of murder at that point, although there was other evidence that my sister was murdered. And so anyway, they caught the guy that did it. They bring him in. We wanted the death penalty to exist, but then we found out that he was wanted for another murder as well, Lisa Pate. And so we were working with the district attorney and they said, do you guys want to take the death penalty off the table if Brandon will lead us to Mickey's body and admit to the murder of this other woman, Lisa Pate? And we said, yes. They said he'll be in solitary confinement with life in prison, and we're certain that if you take the death penalty off, that he will show us where your sister is. So we said, we want to get her back. Let's do it. He did. The detective work on my sister's case was absolutely incredible. They recovered her remains and sent her off to the faces lab because three months in Louisiana heat, she was decomposed for sure, pretty badly, at least to the point where she was unrecognizable. But it was her clothing and everything that she was last seen with. And they called us and said, we're pretty sure we found her. Of course, right after that, the media broke it and we didn't have a single hour to ourselves to like mourn this or deal with it. We had to go to the public and start talking about it. I mean, I am complaining about a lot of stuff. There were some things that I wish could have gone better. We got lucky because where her murderer put her body was in a really old graveyard in a wooded area right off the side and a shallow grave. And it was not in Lafayette Parish. And there's no way we ever would have found her if he had not brought us to her body. And that way we got really lucky. From start to finish, it was about three months. And literally at the end of that three months, I went back to grad school because I didn't know what else to do. Generally speaking, that's kind of what happened. And with all that attention and with the closure of that case, which I think if we did not have that closure, I'd probably still be in Lafayette right now. I'm sorry, I'm about to start crying. One of the things about long-term missing person cases, which I would say technically my sister's case was not long-term, but it really was. And some people just have to wait so much longer or they never get that closure. You never stop looking. So we were able to stop doing that and move on from that process. Also because there was that closure and it was so high profile. After we found my sister, then it blew up even more. I mean, in Times Square, they had on one of the main buildings, Mickey Shunick. <laughs> I'm sorry, y'all. 
No, me- you're you're amazing. Thank you so much. Actually, you're making me cry. So I'm trying to. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I'm sorry. I, no, no, not you. I. Um, <laughs> it's just I. You know, you read these stories, and it's hard not to get emotionally involved. And I don't know you personally, and I think Mickey's case really struck a chord with everyone. Yeah. Well, because that really can't happen to anybody. Anyway, in Times Square, it was so cool. It said Mickey Shunick fought for her life. It was going on there all day. After that, the floodgates opened, and I can't tell you how many people wanted my help, which I understand now, like, why now? Because I was the spokesperson, and it seemed like I was the person doing all this stuff when I wasn't doing anything at all except standing up and talking to cameras or microphones. They were seeking me out. After you go through that, you can't say, sorry, I can't help you. Then I realized, well, you can't tell family members all this information. You need to start organizing it. You need to learn more about the case. And with all that, I said, I'm going to need to start a business and I'm going to need to get confidentiality agreements. And I need to get a group of people that are going to help me do all this stuff. So anyway, that with meeting this woman from Australia is what sort of brought together why I started this organization and how I've come to this point now. And it really is because of my sister that I've been able to sort of maintain this platform. Can I ask, and then Michelle might be able to answer this too, for someone on the outside with your own experience, as well as working with families, there's never like the right thing to say, but what's the best way from the outside for someone to offer their support for someone going through this, the worst experience imaginable? What can someone do or say to help show their support? Just let the family know that you remember and know that their loved one is still missing. Seeing that people are still engaged and and talking about their loved one is by far the most important thing you can do. Because as soon as they feel like there's not support, they're going to lose hope that people aren't going to look for their missing person anymore. I love that you say that because on the days that work is infuriating, on the days that no one seems to care and you miss a deadline and all of those things or my lab students aren't doing their hours or whatever Mm -hmm. I tell myself or we have a come to Jesus talk and we talk about how much this matters even if all we do is code this data and publish this article and 50 people read it somebody's family member got exposure because of the work that we are doing I think we are carrying the torch and that is important. Their loved ones, their wives, their moms and stuff are the people that are still out there looking for them every day. And it's about them. We need to support them and sharing research and data and getting statistics together, which I did find out we can share those articles openly because we're the published authors on it. Putting that data out there, if it gets two people to say, I normally would not share this post about this person that left a rehabilitation center by choice and has gone missing or a runaway teenager. Now maybe they will share it and then they'll reach 300 extra people. And if two people do it, they're going to reach 600 extra people. And it takes one person with one piece of information sometimes to crack that case open. Absolutely. The whole time you told your story, I I had goosebumps. Many times I've been an outsider for it. There's nothing worse. I tell people all the time, almost every interview that I do, I try and humanize it. Every day you worry, are they hungry? Are they cold? Are they thinking of me? You start thinking too, 
like on the 4th of July fireworks were going off. So it was like, at least my sister can know right now of what the day is. That's the kind of stuff you think about. Every minute, every day. It's infuriating that you have to think of it that way because we've created a society where we have a hierarchy of victimness. And so we have families right now that are experiencing the same thing that you experience. And then on top of that, they have this layer of no one gives a shit because I don't look the way that people want me to look. Uh, And that is a much larger problem in our society. And I think with missing persons cases, it forces us to have that conversation over and over and over again in ways that perhaps other disciplines and fields don't. We are very closely faced with that because it may or may not be life or death, right? By Our bias could be killing people. It could. And that, that's the thing that I always try to get across to people. It is a missing man or a runaway teenager, but that missing man could have been killed by somebody in a happenstance that's going to kill someone else. The missing teenager could have been sold into domestic or international trafficking that's going to sell someone else into that field. Or they could have been killed by someone who's going to kill other people. So the circumstances don't always relate to the outcome. Most crime is not planned. And most criminals are career criminals. But if there is someone that did something to another person, whether it's an accident or not, they need to be brought to justice because they can do it to your loved ones too. This type of thing can happen to anybody at any moment. Right now, if someone really wanted to, they could break down my window, grab me, and I could disappear. That's just how it is. And there's no victim blaming or anything else that we can say that's going to make it any different, that someone's missing and we need to find them regardless of why or what the circumstances are. Absolutely. You've told us a little bit about how you help these families as a missing. It just seems like there's so much need. No one is ready for when this will happen to you and no one knows what to do. As a person who's doing this, what is that like? What's your typical phone call? The first thing you have to ask is, well, it depends. A lot of the times before I'm speaking with a a family or like a friend directly, I already know a little bit. And the first thing I ask is, have you filed a missing person report with the police? The second thing you have to ask is, what do you think happened? When was the last time you saw them? What are the circumstances? After you find out the circumstances, that's when you can determine what the best route of action is going to be. With a case like my sister's, where it is mysterious and we knew that someone intervened with her existence or her life, the thing that we did was appropriate. Sometimes it's not appropriate to go to the media and do press releases. Sometimes it's not appropriate to request the help of law enforcement or get the community involved. Or I mean, sorry, search and rescue. You always want to involve law enforcement. And it just depends. Suicide cases, for example, Typically, they're found within one to three days, very quickly. So that's a positive on a really terrible circumstance. You don't want to go and blast it out because if the person is suicidal but not actively committing suicide and they see that, it might push them over the edge. Very good point. Other times, you also get a lot of cases where as soon as I talk to the person, the things that they're saying in the back of my head, I'm like, we're going to find this person's loved one by the end of the day. 
as soon as they see their face on Facebook and a missing person flyer, they're going to go home, which is fine. You still take the proper steps, but it just depends. Given the circumstances, then you can start recommending, okay, let's go ahead and get a press release together. Let's go ahead and make a Facebook page or a group. Let's go ahead and get a flyer. And it just depends. And then you can gauge how much assistance the people will need. How many people are with them to help? Is everyone getting along? Is there someone that can write really well or knows how to use Facebook properly and all that type of stuff? And outside of that, most families just need someone to ask intimate questions to and cry to and complain to that they know is not going to tell anyone anything about it. And that's exactly what we do. As a researcher, I'm like, okay, how do we standardize this? How do we package this so that more people can use it? It sounds like there's a lot of expert interpretation necessary to sort of know what steps to take. Do you think that's true? Yes. And I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I really do think I have to be one of the leading experts on missing person cases, probably in the world, but at least in the nation. There's only a handful of us out there that exist, and we have a lot more time to dedicate to this than your standard police officer or law enforcement official does. I think you bring up another really important point. We talk on this podcast about making Michelle McNamara into a verb, (laughs) right? Because we have been in contact just by chance with such badass women doing kick-ass stuff and like not giving up in the face of adversity over and over and over and over again. We applaud those women, like Jen, who we've had on a couple of times, is psychologically taxing. It is a very heavy load to carry to do work like this, especially as just one person. But (laughs) luckily, the school that I teach at has been so supportive and they have allowed me to blend my biology background and my psychology background and my expertise in missing people to now be able to start creating a forensic science concentration. Now I get to teach students and my classes are getting to be very popular. I have to like, at least the lectures, the last, who wants to stay in the lab for three hours a week? I can bring my expertise and mix it with all this science and and information and teach adult people about it that are going into criminal justice systems. So that has been amazing. And it has made me even better at working on missing person cases and guiding the families. And when they have complaints about various aspects of being in a true crime, like living through it, I can explain most of it to them. It's been very interesting. My life has changed in ways I could not predict 10 years ago. I love this forensic science stuff that you're doing. Can you tell us a little bit more about the kinds of stuff that you're teaching your students? My background's in neuroscience. When I came back to New Orleans, after I took that year off, I was asked to adjunct and teach anatomy and physiology. After about a year, I applied to be a full-time teacher and I got the job. They asked me if I wanted to teach a forensic course for crime scene investigation for outdoor crime scenes. And I was like, yeah, sure. And they sent me off to get some training in Texas at Sam Houston State University and Texas State University, where they have two body farms. In doing that, I started partnering with all these people in New Orleans. And one of the people I partnered with was SUNO, Southern University of New Orleans. They have the only forensic bachelor program in the area. They requested that I build these different courses. 
So I put the foot search or the crime scene investigation course to the side, and I started building a forensic biology lecture lab. The next thing that I created, I was asked to make a forensic anthropology course, a lecture and lab. So I went to my dean at the time and I said, you think I could have a body farm on campus with animals? And he was like, ha, 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 uh, I'll ask. And literally two weeks later, he emailed me and said, hey, you got approval for the body farm. Then I partnered with Wildlife and Fisheries, and they gave me many different animal remains, and I'm still partnered with them. The body farms existed for almost two years now. I've taught my students how to do a plethora of things. So the forensic aspect side, and now the forensic anthropology side, and they love it. And I've actually converted many students from going into nursing to going and studying either biotechnology to get into laboratories or to do criminal justice and move over to SUNO to get their forensic science degrees. That's amazing. It sounds weird, but it's really, truly amazing. And it's a whole ecosystem out there. That sounds fantastic. I know a lot of people in our department who would be envious. (laughs) So what's next? for you? What's what's your short-term and long-term goals? I've been definitely toying with the idea of getting a PhD in forensic psychology, not to practice, but so that I can stay in the world of forensic science now. Because my experience now is great, but I don't know if another school or another company would actually hire me to work in this type of field because my background is in something totally different. Outside of that, I'm just going to keep working on missing person cases. I do plan. I feel the energy is back in my life to a point where I probably can do it again. We got to finish the website. Um, I hope after finishing the website, we're going to still be doing some research with y'all. I'm hoping I'll be able to use these two things as a platform to really start expanding a little bit more. I'll probably work on with families until the day that I die. What advice would you have as someone who has been through this for families or friends of the missing in any cases where we have this immediate missingness or prolongedness? Don't give up. Never stop raising hell. When you hit that wall, and I find that the wall comes for a lot of people when they have other people in their lives that are saying, it's time to move on. It's time to let it go your loved one is dead and we're never going to find them. Don't listen to those people and don't stop fighting. Even if that person is dead, even if we don't find them, you have to keep looking because until we know where they are, we're never going to know what happened. So just don't let other people bring you down. Don't stop fighting. Every single day, do something to raise a little bit more hell. And if you can't figure out more ways to create a spark, remember that there are groups out here that will help you. And it's not just mine. Any search and rescue team, they have countless infinite bits and pieces of suggestions and advice to give you. Don't let it stop your fire. Don't let your flame get extinguished. Like just keep looking. One day that little one piece of information might come that will bring that closure. And then you have to consider some of those other cases where like, uh, what was his name? Ariel Castello, I think, who had those women living in his house for like 15 years. Mm -hmm. Ariel Castro. Yeah, Castro, thank you. 
you don't really know what happened and you can't give up. I don't think there's a better ending to this than what you just said. Thank you so much, Charlie, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for doing what you're doing. We need more people like you. And I hope we can shed more light on missing persons cases and help start to give families the resources that they need because of organizations like yours. More than anything, families just need to know that there are people you can trust out there, but try not to trust everyone that you meet. Research and who's trying to help you before you just jump in head first is what I would, the last bit of advice I would give.